Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing you content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. In today's episode, I'll be talking to one of the game's greatest ever players of all time, if not the greatest about moments that shaped his career. I am, of course, talking about the Rocket, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie, good to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Andy. You all right? I'm good, bro. Your hair's getting long under lockdown rules. Like it? Are you going to shave it or are you going to keep it growing? We'll keep it growing, mate, until this is all done. You know, you might go back to how you used to have it when you had hair clips and Alice bands. Yeah, I doubt that. No, okay. Uh, listen, we've got lots coming up in today's show, and it's going to be interesting because we're going to start with your early years before, of course, we heard about Ronnie O'Sullivan. I want to find out about what family life was like, what home life was like, and what age you realised you had a bit of a talent. So let's go to the very beginning. The first time you got involved in snooker or even knew what snooker was, how old were you? Uh, probably about eight years of age. Started off um, playing on my cousin's table, the other little table at his house. Uh, yeah, just hitting a few balls around and that. And my dad see that I had like a little bit of a love for, for playing it and he bought me a pool table for Christmas. And then remember that moment, I got my own pool table. That was it. I was on it all the time. So a pool table, in case people don't know, that's a six by three size table. Yeah. And of course, you've got pool balls and not snooker balls. So when did you think, actually, it's not pool I want to get involved with, it's snooker? Uh, when my dad took me down the snooker club for the first time, so... Uh, I'm just trying to remember the actual first time I see a professional snooker table. Probably would have been in the snooker club in Dean Street. Cause I remember walking in there and just couldn't believe how big these tables were. And um, yeah, so that was probably the first time that was like started to play snooker. Many a time, and I'll mention it now. You and I, we grew up around the corner from each other. We went to the same school. And I was probably about 13, because I was obviously the best player by miles at school. I was 13, and then someone went, there's this kid two years below you. Is unbelievable. And uh, I was like, right, okay, I need to find out what it was like. And I didn't even realise at the time you had a snooker table in your garden as well. You, I think you, your dad built some kind of room for the snooker table. Tell us a bit more about how, what, how on earth you go from a six by three table to your dad building a room and putting a full size in it. Well, because obviously I had to go to school and stuff like that. And sometimes I couldn't get to the snooker club because you know, I'd come home or whatever and only get maybe a couple of hours on, on, on the table and I'd have to come home, have dinner and go to bed. So my dad sort of said, right, we've got, got to find a place where we can get a full-size table. And then we moved, I think it was about 100 metres from where we was living before. He just walked across the back of the garden. He knew we could get a full-size table in there if we built a room. And that was it. He said, yeah, we'll have it. He bought the house, gutted it, put the snooker room in there, and that was it. So I had my own snooker room from, you know, the age of maybe 12 or something. No, maybe even younger, maybe 10, 11. So, yeah. So, so you, your dad's obviously done this because he thinks you've got more than just the talent in the game. 
Yeah, he was telling everyone when I was 10 that I was going to be world champion and, and all that. And I get people coming up to me now saying, oh, you know, you don't know me, but I knew your dad and dad come in and used to tell everyone again, you watch my son. He even said it to Paul Gascoigne. So when I first met Paul Gascoigne, he went to me, we met your dad. He told us you was going to be world champion. And I was like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He said, me and Paul Allen were sitting in the hotel room. He said, Nick, you come on the TV. We went, yeah, well, that geezer, he was right. So it was, uh, it was quite funny, yeah. He used to tell everybody. How did you cope with depression? And when, when you started winning matches and there was a lot of expectation, your dad was telling everyone you were going to become a future champion of the world. How did you deal with that pressure? I don't know, really. I didn't really feel the pressure. I used to, I was just excited, you know. I just loved playing. I loved competing. Um, yeah, so it wasn't like pressure, you know, where, you know, it's, it's sometimes when you're, you know, I remember I played a challenge match against another kid my age and that was that was a horrible type of pressure because you never wanted to lose to someone you know it was like a big challenge match and he ended up beating me I remember his name Craig Stockford he'd come all the way down from Leeds um but most of the time I was just playing like amateurs that were older than me juniors so I had nothing to lose I was just I just enjoyed playing and then once you start to win and compete you know win tournaments you know very rarely you know the pressure if, if anything the pressure made you play better really did you enjoy then playing? Loved it. Was it the snooker classic you played Steve Ventham? Was that the one on telly? Yeah, the Cockney classic. It was the first time I played on TV. But I always used to love a crowd. So if I was at the club practice and no one was watching, you know, we'd be playing. But if like five or six people used to come down and sit and watch, I'd just, that'd be like, my, my, you know, that'd be me right now. I'd have to like perform for these people. I didn't want the other guy making me look silly. So I used to up my game and I used to do that all the time, you know. Um, so I think, you know, I always used to perform better when there was a crowd or there was, there, was, there was something on the match, you know. I was never a great practice player. There's a big difference, Ronnie, between people saying he's going to be a winner and then you actually becoming a winner. And you did it so early in your career. At 17, you became UK champion. Overnight, you became a household name. Did that affect you dramatically? Did you suddenly wake up one morning and think, wow, everyone expects me to be world champion? Um, a little bit, in a way, because like once I kind of won that tournament I felt like the big monkey off my back because obviously like my dad was away and you know it, I, when he went away I, it took me a year to just get my head around sort of accepting that he wasn't going to be around you know and he was like a big driving force behind me you know so he kept me on the straight and narrow and to not have him there it was tough you know because you know we, we, we was like, it was like a teamwork sort of thing so when I won that tournament I felt like you know I'd devoted that win to him and and if I never won another tournament it'd be fine so in a way my intensity levels dropped a bit and I just started enjoying myself maybe a bit too much thinking that I'd made it when really I hadn't you know it was just one tournament mm. so uh, yeah you know and, I, and even still like I said from, from 1995 to 2000 I won a few tournaments but I was never really consistent or winning as much as I should have done. When you look back now Ron as a grown adult and you look back at everything you achieved in your career and you achieved most of it without your dad being around you how different do you think your career could have been had he been there yeah I think it would have been a lot different I think I'd have won the world championships a lot earlier um I think I would have won plenty more tournaments um yeah absolutely would have been 100% would have been different but it was what it was and you know and it was just unfortunate you know it was unfortunate for me unfortunate for him and yeah, things could have been so much better, really. You know, I could have, I certainly would have enjoyed my career a lot more having him around and 
to not having him around, you know. You had quite a troubled time um, early on in your career throughout the, the mid to late 90s. What was going on in your private life, Ronnie? I don't know. I just, I just was partying a bit too much. You know, like I said, I thought, I thought when I won that tournament, I thought I'd made it. So I, I kind of come into a bit of money. You know, I had a, a nice house, nice car. Just, you know, I just, you know, I, I was single. So, you know, I could do what I want when I like, really. And I just, I just probably chose the wrong company, but it just got hold of me, really, you know. And um, I took my eye off the ball. I, I wasn't really focused on snooker. And, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I wasted probably five years of my career just just messing about, really, you know. Was there one particular moment where you thought, right, all this has got to stop now and I've got to concentrate on snooker again? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think after I lost to Stephen Hendry in 1996, um, and I was quite overweight as well, so I was e- eating and drinking quite a lot, and... You know, I looked at a picture of myself and I was like, Jesus, it, it dawned on me. And, and I just thought, I need to get myself fit again. So I, I kind of spent three months, I've lost my driving license. So I spent three months just going to the gym two or three times a day, eating really well. And I got myself in good shape for the next season. And then I managed to win like four or five tournaments that season, which was great. Um, but then I, then I went back to drinking and partying again. So for the next two years, you know, I was, you know, I was... You know, I wasn't as bad as I was before, but, you know, I was still kind of doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, you know. So um, that's why I decided that I had to go to the Priory. And, you know, I, I, I basically, first thing in the morning, I was getting up, having a drink, having a joint, you know, just to kind of like function through the day, which was, uh, which never felt good, you know, because I thought, I don't, I don't want to have to rely on this sort of stuff. But I think it just got hold of, hold of me a bit too much. And that's uh, when I decided that I tried to get help for it, you know. And presumably you had the right people around you at, at that time that were there for you and sort of, you know, gave you a helping hand and pushed you in the right direction, I imagine. No, I just ran up the drugs helpline. I said, look, you know, I've got a bit of a problem. I said, I need to get some help. I said, I think I know what it is. I said, and I just would like, to, you know, if you come some help. She was like, yeah, fine. You know, so she come around the house and spoke to me. And within two hours of meeting her, she had me in the Priory in Roehampton. So... Wow. Probably the best thing, that, best thing that I'd ever done. I didn't want to go. It was, I was scared, you know. I thought, I don't want to go into some... I'm not, an, I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I've just got to learn how to just control it a bit. And then when I went in there and they said, you know, complete abstinence, I was like, what? <laughs> oh, there's no way I'd be able to do that. But, you know, it's... Um, yeah, I, I've managed to kind of get clean and sober. and I haven't stayed clean and sober the whole time, but... You know, I don't, I don't go out and have one or two drinks, you know what I mean? I'll have a little blast every six months if it's a birthday party or a New Year's Eve thing. Otherwise, I'm a teetotal, really. And when you look back now at either pictures of you from that era or even videos of you playing, do you see a totally different person? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't look at anything from 1994 up until when I came out of the Priory. I just wouldn't want to look at it because it's just such bad sort of um, memories for me, do you know what I mean? Um, mm. Anything from coming out of prior onwards, that's when I clasped in my career. It was a proper career, really, you know, where I was just giving it 100%. Now, I, I weren't always mentally in great shape because, you know, I struggled with performing badly. But I was still, you know, putting a, putting a practice and putting the work in. And if my game was right, 
then you know I was I was I was one of the favourites to win any tournament. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we're going to have a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be looking ahead and finding out exactly how that Ronnie became the Ronnie O'Sullivan that won the World Championship five times. We'll see you right after this. Now let's brighten things up and uh, talk about the great moments that shaped your career, Ronnie. And one of the, the big key moments, I'm guessing, from your point of view, was the introduction of six-time snooker champion of the world, Ray Reardon. How did that come about? Whose decision was it to make that call? And how much did he change your game? Um, my dad made the phone call to somebody. I don't know who he called. Um, but he said, look, he said, I think Ronnie could do with a little bit of someone with a bit of experience in his corner. But who, who would you recommend? And they've mentioned a few names. And then he said, the run you really want to get hold of would be Ray Reardon. And they said, well, can you get his number for me? And he was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. So he got Ray's number. And my dad phoned him up. And um, he had a chat to him. He said, "Look, you know, he says, uh, would you would you would you want to do help help my son?" Yeah, he went, "Yeah, I'd love to, no problem." <laughs> so uh, he got off the phone to Ray Reed, and he found out. He went, "Yeah, I've got Ray Reed's number. He's waiting for you to call him." So this was this was halfway through a match. I was playing Andy Ix at the time, and I was, I think I was nine seven down in the final session. And um, I had a phone call with Ray, and I said, Ray, I'm playing well, but I'm 9 7 down. He went, He's not scared of you, that's why. And I was like, Really? He went, No, he's not scared of you. No, 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 no. So um, he said, You know, just keep him tight, keep tight. Don't, keep, don't go for them ones where you're leaving him in easy. You know, so I thought, All right, so I tightened up a little bit, done what he said. And I won the match quite easy, like 13, 10, 13, 11. But it felt different. It felt a different way of playing, you know. I felt in control and, you know, I've got more mistakes out of my opponent. So that was my first lesson with Ray over the phone. And then the next day he was in Sheffield and then we really got to work on the table. And then from that moment onwards, um, you know, I was, I was a different player, a completely different player. And all for the, all, and all for the better as well. And there's a big age gap between the two of you. So... What were you both like off the table? Did you hang about together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got to say, his company was the best company I'd ever had on tour. He was the funniest. He, was, he, he just had a lot of class. Uh, he was hilarious. It was just great fun. Just great fun. And, um, yeah, he just had a little twinkle in his eye, Ray. You know what I mean? He's, just, uh, he's such a character. And such brilliant stories. And You know, I, I could, I, you know what? I'd, I'd never get fed up with working with Ray because we'd just get on the table. And he probably, he, 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 for me to probably enjoy the next five, ten years of my game, he would probably be better than anyone to have in my corner because we could just talk about the game and certain aspects of it. And, you know, it's not just about pot and balls, it's just more about the science of the game. And I probably lost a little bit of that because it's been so long since I've worked with Ray and I've probably gone more back to how I used to play. Mm. Um, but to work with someone like Ray was, was, was a dream come true, yeah? And he obviously helped you on the table, but what about away from the table? Did he did he help you with how to cope with maybe the stress of being a sportsman? Uh, yeah, he just had great faith in me. You know, he said, like, no one plays snooker like you. So I've been playing this game a long time. He says, no one does it. He said, all you've got to do is just go out there and make sure you've got a good defence. Um, no one's better than you in the balls, you know. And, um, and he said, just play, just play. And um, and that was it, really. We 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 both, you know, he had confidence in that, you know, I could manage myself right off the table and be professional enough. And 
and that was that was that was it really. You've got to have trust in each other, and I think he trusted in me that I was going to give it a hundred percent, and that was enough. Uh, you later went on to work with Steve Peters, who I know you've got a lot of respect for, Ronnie. How did that meeting come about? Again, that was through one of my managers at the time. He he sort of knew me better than anyone at the time, and he just knew that I was having like these stage fright, if you was like, you know, um, I was. I was okay practicing, but then as soon as the tournament come, I'd get so overly anxious that I would end up worrying myself so much that I wouldn't be able to put a ball when I get there, and I wouldn't even be able to enjoy it. And um, he'd read this article about this guy that CP was working with, and he just, just thought it sounds just like Ronnie, like Ronnie could do with some help from this guy. So I um, got in touch with Steve Peters, and he agreed to meet me. We went up to his house. Um, I think I spent about an hour with him for the first session. After like 10, 15 minutes, I thought, oh, this geezer is he's different, you know. And he grabbed my attention, you know, and I thought, you know, I want to I wanna see what this guy's got to offer. So I've done what he said. And then for a year, two years, I really studied hard on the model and tried to get my emotions under check, which I did. And I had, I had become a different player. So, you know, in the same way that Ray changed me, Steve changed me in my mental approach, you know. So by then I felt like I'd covered all my weaknesses if you like mm. are you still in contact with Steve do you still use him if you like in matches yeah sometimes I, um, I don't bother Steve much because I know that he's obviously really busy with other sports people and stuff like that and if I was really hungry and had like total desire to want to still be the best and it was like the most important thing in my life then I would obviously visit Steve once a month like I used to when I first met Steve but I've got kids and I've got family and I've got stuff and I just don't Snooker's not my number one priority, you know. If I've got a bit of a, an issue or a problem and I'm, and I'm struggling with something, then I'll call Steve up and we'll talk it through and he might come to one or two tournaments and we might meet up. But otherwise, I'm just, you know, I, I know what I've got to do. Um, I'm, I'm not bothered about being the best, you know. For me, it's just about just playing, enjoying it, having a bit of fun. It's a bit of a time pass. You know, if I decide one season to really get serious about it, then I could probably, you know, spend some more time with Steve. But at the moment, I just haven't got the desire to put that much into it, to be honest with you. So, so can you give us a bit of an insight as to what you and Steve would discuss? How would he help you mentally? What would you talk about? A lot of the times I would just get so worried about what outcomes were and, you know, am I going to play well? Am I going to do this? And we'd just sort of like play the tape forward and all the different scenarios that could happen. And then we would sort of look at the, you know, and then just kind of just spin it around and just look at it from different sort of angles. And, you know, once you kind of got it out there, you know, it's just sort of like, I know it sounds, it's, it's, it's not easy to sum it up really, but it's just about just quieting, you know, just going out there and being focused on one ball at a time realising that our minds are very fickle thing. One minute you can feel great, the next minute you're not going to feel so great. But don't allow that not so great feeling to sabotage the job in hand. So you become a bit more like a robot in a way. So you're learning to not get too high, you don't get too low, and you just kind of just, you know, if you can play, keep your emotions in check, then that's going to help you with your shot selection. It's going to help you if you're going through a tough moment in the match to turn it around a lot quicker and um, you're much more present in, in many ways and um, for me it was just, the biggest thing for me was just not sabotaging you know a lot of times you know I play one bad shot and decide oh it's not my day 
Whereas now I don't do that. I just try and fight for every ball, everything till the end and, and try and stay um, and just try and enjoy it, yeah. I know you're um, very friendly with quite a few Asian players on the tour and there's young players coming through. So do you ever pass on maybe some advice or do they ever contact you, take you to the corner of the room and ask for a bit of advice? Does that happen in snooker with you, Ron? Yeah, sometimes there's a couple of young Chinese players that I've tried to uh, give them a bit of advice because there's so many talented players out there and it baffles me how they don't get the results that their talent you know, they've got unbelievable talent, more talent than me and more talent than John Higgins. But they just seem to just play like these loose shots, which cost them. You know, a lot of these experienced players, you know, they feed off of that. And I just think if they could just learn mm. just a little few basics, they wouldn't, they wouldn't leave themselves so wide open. It's a bit like a boxer coming in swinging. You know, eventually they're just going to get, they're going to get picked off. And in Snoopy, you've got to try and not let your opponent do that to you. So a lot of these young Chinese players and a fantastic talent, but they just kind of like make it a little bit too easy, you know, a little bit like I was before I met Ray Reardon, you know, I was I was struggling against players that I thought I was better than, but it's because I was being over aggressive and there's a time to be aggressive and there's a time when not to be and, you know, they're just aggressive 24-7. If they ain't going in, we're going to get beat and then that's when you've got to learn to have two games, you've got your A and you've got your B game. Some days, if them balls ain't going in, you have to you have to turn them down, and that's horrible. It's hard to do, but sometimes you know you just need to buy yourself a bit of time. So, mm. but it's, it's with their language barrier as well. It's hard, you know, because they don't speak great English. So sometimes you know you can get lost in translation. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I'd make the best coach. You know, once I stop playing, I'd like to think that I could do with someone what Ray Reardon done for me. You know, and be in their corner and try and you know try and help someone. Uh, the mental side of the game, Ronnie, is obviously very important to you and to everyone else. Um, and you've got to have a, a clear head and a clear mind. So your interests away from snooker, we know you're a keen runner. Are you still running at the moment? No, I, I haven't really run properly for about nine years. I've had a lot of injuries and stuff like that. I do a bit of jogging. I do a few 3K, 5Ks. Um, yeah, that's about what my body can take at the moment. I would like to, at some point, when the snooker dies down, to try and get my body fit and healthy and try and maybe run a half marathon, the Great North or something like that, and get back into doing some 10Ks and cross-country runs. Um, yeah, but I still, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm a bit of a jogger at the moment. And we know you like cooking. You bought a cooking book out. You're still working in the kitchen? Yeah, I still like to cook. I love to, you know, take, try and take my nutrition as serious as I can. I'm at my heaviest weight I've been in nearly three years now. Wow. Put on, yeah, I put on about a stone in the last four four or five months. So um, just no exercise and, 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 and eating really bad, to be honest with you. So um, it's this lockdown. It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> I, think, uh, I don't think you're alone with that. Um, and also, I've noticed over the last, I don't know, 18 months, maybe two years, you've, of course, been managing your schedule, your snooker schedule a lot more. Um, not travelling as much, um, not playing in as many competitions. How, how does this help you, Ron? I think it backfired on me this year because the previous years, you know, I, when I did play, I either won the event or at least got to the final. So, you know, I was getting a lot of ranking points and that was keeping me up the rankings. Um, you know, I got to number one towards the end of last year. That's like playing like half the songs all the other players were playing. Um, but you need to win tournaments to do that. And this year, I haven't. You know, I've made finals. I've made two semis. made two quarters. I've made two last 16. So it hasn't been a bad season. Um, but it just hasn't, you know, because 
I hadn't played enough. Then obviously I, str- I struggled to. I think I was. I think I was about eighteen on the one year list. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, th- I think next year I probably I won't practice, and I'll just play probably play every tournament and use that as my practice. So when I come home, I don't play. I spend time at home. I can do some of my other bits and pieces that I enjoy to do, like a bit of property and stuff like that, uh, because I don't want to be a slave to the game. But then I think you know if I'm gonna I'm only going to play 90 or 100 days a year. I might as well play 70 of them matches or 80 matches and just and just use the matches as my practice. And if you lose early, great, you get home, have a few days at home, and just try try doing it differently, you know, and, uh, and seeing what I get. Because last year was a disaster, you know, you know, and I was missing so many tournaments that when I did come back to play, I felt like you know I was off the, well off the pace, mm. and and that wasn't a nice feeling either. So. Yeah, I think I'll give it a one good crack maybe next year or the year after, try and play some more. And then, you know, by the time I'm 50, uh, call it a day. Well, hold on. So when you're 50, you're going to call it a day now, is that right? At some point, you know, I can't go on forever. You know, be, it looks stupid, you know, me keep playing and playing. I mean, I love love doing the exhibitions and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, if I can get another four or five years out of my snooker career, that'd be great. Um, obviously, I like to do the exhibitions, um, but then obviously look to do stuff away from snooker. You know, I've done Hustle, which was five years ago. I should have really done another one straight off the back of it. I wanted to focus on my snooker a bit more, so maybe there's to look to do some other stuff, you know, like have a, have a TV career and other stuff. And just quickly as well, looking back at last season, you of course famously didn't enter the Masters. Um, was that the right decision at the right time or, or now looking at how you finished the season and you mentioned your ranking on the one-year list is outside the top 16. Is that something perhaps that you thought you could, if you could go back in time and change things, maybe you should have gone in for it or not? No, not at all. I actually enjoyed my week there working on the, on the, on the TV. Um, really enjoyed it. It wasn't a ranking event anyway, so it wouldn't make no difference to my ranking position. I wish I'd played Austria and Germany. Um, that was something that I was contemplating um like i said the, the only tournaments i want to play are the ones where there's not so much media attention on me you know because a lot of these tournaments there you know you have to do like six or seven media interviews after the game and then you've got to do tv interviews and i just get so tired and bored of having to repeat myself that's all you're doing so a lot of the overseas events are a lot easier in that respect you turn up you play you do one interview and then you're back in your hotel so really the best tournaments for me are the ones where i travel a little bit and um so, yeah, I'm just going to try and cut out the, the events where there's a demand put on my time other than just playing, you know. Mm. So, um, when you're younger, it's great doing all the interviews, but as you get older, you're like, you get so bored. And, you know, sometimes you're not, you know, I don't even know the right answer to some of these questions you ask me. So, you just end up spouting out a load of old rubbish, you know. Well, I'll tell you what I have noticed um, over the last half hour since we've been talking is that you seem to be in a really good place. You've, from speaking to you for the last 30 minutes, when it sounds like all is good in your life and you're happy at the moment. Yeah, everything's great. You know, obviously, it's a really tough time for everybody having this lockdown, and it's really been super challenging. But, you know, I've, I hopefully we can get through this and get back to normality, get in the gym, get playing, and, and hopefully, like, in the next, like I said, one or two years, start playing some more tournaments and giving myself a much better chance of doing well in the tournaments when I do plan it. Well, it's always been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for your time. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Yeah. There's loads of these on Eurosport, so make sure you check all them out. Uh, That's all we've got time for from myself and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Thanks, and we'll see you again real soon. Bye for now. Adios, amigos.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 